Welcome to the Lifetime at Work podcast. This is a podcast all about enjoying and finding fulfillment in your job and your career. We spend so much time at work. So how do we make it count? How do we make sure it's worthwhile? How do we know we're in the right place doing the right thing for us? I'm your host, Greg Martin, and this is episode number one, the very first one. And thank you so much for joining. I ask these questions about work and career to myself all the time. That's why I started this podcast. And every week I'll be talking with someone new about their job, uh, the good and the bad, and what the job means to them, what it's like to work in that profession. On this podcast, you'll meet people like you, people in jobs who are trying to make an impact and build a career and a life that they can be proud of. People trying to build lives that can give them what they want and be happy. It sounds easy, but, but it's hard. So have you ever thought about changing careers, but you aren't so sure? If you're curious about other people in their jobs and what it's like and if they're happy. If you've ever thought about owning your own business one day, working for yourself, or trying to make a bigger impact on the world through your job, this podcast is for you. So I have intro music, so let's cue that and then we will get started. Before we get going here, I wanted to point out our website. It's at lifetimeatwork.com. On there, you'll be able to see a list of all the episodes. You'll be able to learn a little bit more about me, but you'll also be able to sign up for our newsletter, email newsletter. And what that means is, you know, in your inbox for every episode, we'll let you know what it is and if it's interesting for you so you can download it. But also, my plan here is to have you be able to connect with my guests later. Maybe you want to ask them a follow-up question. Maybe you want to connect with them yourselves. You want to have a Zoom call and meet them or, or meet them in person someday. Um, I, I want to encourage that ability to, to, to talk to them and, and to create a dialogue and, and, and really a community around, around this. Because you know through one episode, I don't think we're going to touch on every single thing that you may want to know or that may help you in, in your career and in your journey. So through the website and through signing up to the email newsletter, you're going to get more information. I'm going to include contact information um, in some way or another for, for every guest that I have so that if you, if you do want to and you are interested in contacting them, you can. So go to lifetimeatwork.com. There you can see everything and you can sign up for the newsletter. So who the hell am I? Why me? Why did I start this podcast? Well, the thing is, I don't have all the answers to the questions I posed before, but I do feel like I'm at the intersection of my career trying to figure out how I can make an impact and how I can get the things that I want out of my job. And so I'm going to tell you my background. So hopefully you can learn more about me in this episode and through that, learn more about how I can help empower people and help people to get the most out of their work lives. So a bit about me, I graduated from Wilfrid Laurier University uh, with a business degree. I knew I wanted to do something in business, not what I thought I would be an accountant. And I discovered finance and, and ended up getting a job graduating from school in investment banking. And right out of the gate doing M&A advisory, I was working 80 to 100 hour weeks, sometimes more. And I told myself doing that, that I would sort of do it for two or three years and then and then quit and then go do something else. It would be great experience and I would learn a lot. And that did happen. But I found myself 11 years later still in investment banking. By this point, um, a director trying to move up further. And through the last especially three or four years, it really weighed on me. I really wanted to do something else. I really wanted a different experience somehow. And I didn't really know what that was. And so one day I just decided, okay, I, I need to quit. And I had been planning a, a long trip with my family. And so we took this six or six, at least six week, almost seven week road trip. We drove all the way um, with my uh, then, you know, two year old son and my wife all the way to Napa from Toronto, which is an incredibly long drive. And then, and then up to, to Dauphino uh, there on Vancouver Island and, and all the way through Alberta and Montana and drove back to, to, to Toronto. And it was just this thing that I had wanted to do and, and always had wanted the time and the ability to sort of do it and, and finally could. And ever since then, I've been on this sort of um, journey, I think, doing a bunch of different things. And one of those things is going to tie in very well to this episode. Because in 2017, I invested in a restaurant and a guy by the name of Kyle Webster was the guy who was going to run it. I was just an investor. I was still working in my job at that time. And we spent a bunch of time, even from 20, end of 2014, 2015, trying to think about a restaurant idea and, and develop it. And by 
2017, we opened and it took us a long time to, to find a location, but we ended up opening up by the St. Lawrence Market uh, in downtown Toronto, right near a lot of the offices in the financial district. There's a lot of condos in that area. And the, the, the far- restaurant name was called Farmer. And, you know, the idea was to make casual food for people, but make it farm to table. So a, a really high end type of, uh, of cuisine in, in the sense that it was, you know, from the farm and delicious and, and sort of healthy. Uh, but at the same time, pretty affordable for people for lunches. And so we became, um, I think, you know, over the years, we kind of became successful in doing that and in, in sticking with it. And, you know, it was hard at the beginning. We we lost money definitely for the first, you know, um, year, year and a half. And I became sort of more involved in the business. And finally, there in 2019, uh, we kind of turned a curve. We, we really got it going. We had, um, uh, you know, a meaningful office catering business, which was growing like crazy. Um, and meanwhile, you know, all summer we had tourist season and, uh, you know, our food was just taking off. We had figured out a lot of the kinks in the business that, that just, you know, had to happen. And, and we had to sort of go through as a new business. And so, um, through the summer of 2019 into the, into the fall and into winter and Christmas, we were, we were doing really well and had, you know, higher revenue than we'd ever had and, and really figured stuff out to the point where by the beginning of 2020, we were contemplating an expansion. We needed to um, change our space and do a bit of a renovation in our space to, to be able to take on all the business that we were doing. And then all of a sudden, as you know, March of 2020 hit and within, I, I, you know, a week we had basically had gone to zero. COVID-19 changed a lot for us as a restaurant and we've been closed since March with no real idea of if or when we will ever open again. We were just so tied to offices and the return of offices needs to happen. Otherwise our business really doesn't make sense as the, the way it was. And Kyle Webster who I'm going to bring on in a second is the the head chef. He was really running the place and, and and sort of still is, though you know we aren't open. For him, he was a fine dining chef. He worked at a lot of top restaurants and you know around the world. And coming to Farmer was really an opportunity for him to run the place, really to have his own restaurant, but not to sell fine dining, to sort of sell a high quality meal, but at an everyday sort of price. And work with farmers directly and bring a farm to table type experience, but but you know more of an everyday one. And we just aren't able to do that now, and it, it is sad. But you know, there's a lot more to it, and there's a lot that we learned about the restaurant industry and ourselves, I think, in doing this. So here with that is my interview with Kyle Webster. So welcome, Kyle, to the first ever episode of the Lifetime at Work podcast. I'm really excited that you are the first person on and and my first guest. Um, because it it really means a lot to me. I know we've worked together a ton in the last um, three years, especially, but I wanted to um, talk about a bunch of things related to the restaurant industry and and your experiences and what you sort of got out of the experience of of running a restaurant and and owning this business, really. Um, But first off, I thought it made a lot of sense to talk about COVID-19 and its impact on farmers. So do you want to talk quickly about, you know, the impact that COVID-19 has had on us as a, as a restaurant and as a business and why that might be a little bit more than, than maybe some other restaurants um, that are maybe not doing so bad right now. Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for having me. It's uh, kind of good to be able to come on and uh, talk about, you know, the work experience. I think the main kind of impact for us when we talk about COVID uh, and how it's affected farmer in particular, you know, like we built a really cool business that was based around feeding office workers, you know, healthy, high quality food that just, just, you know, there was a huge gap in the market and, and something that just wasn't readily accessible in downtown Toronto. And, you know, for us, the landscape just completely shifted with, with, with COVID and, and people not being in their offices. And, you know, like, uh, would you agree that's, that's kind of the crux of how this has impacted us? Yeah. It's totally. kind of glaring underlying thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it was, it was a part like the business really, of farmer was too. It was sort of a restaurant, you know, and then there was also the part of uh, catering. And, and that was huge kind of two things we had going on. It was, you know, both were, were big parts of the business. And 
and both were really reliant on having people in offices. A lot of our lunch customers were yeah. people in offices. And so, you know, you kind of just don't have that anymore. Like downtown just isn't the same. People are people working from home, as we all know. They're and, and it's just not a they're not worried about it. They're not they're not coming out and eating lunch in the same way. And from a from a perspective, okay, so we don't have the catering part of it. That part is pretty much on hold, but there's still a restaurant part of it, right? And like, you know, have you seen, you know, delivery and delivery services becoming more popular, I imagine? I mean, they are, but like, you know, what, what sort of restaurants do you think are, are best positioned for that? Yeah, that's a good question. Because that's true. You know, we had this this experiential piece, that, uh, you know, with the restaurant, with, you know, our patio and in our eat-in experience and, you know, which was something we worked very hard on in terms of our, our, our customer experience. And as much as we had a utilitarian product with, you know, a value proposition that was based around eating healthy, it was still an experiential restaurant. And in reality, places that are based on, on, you know, an eating experience and a customer experience are not going to be positioned well right now. Um, I think it's just, it's going to be extremely difficult over the next while to, to get people in with, with seating capacity and, and, and kind of get through this. And then, you know, that kind of plays into delivery services. Um, obviously, everyone has tried to shift to meeting demand in the home to trying to use delivery services. And I think for a lot of the higher end restaurants, it, it just doesn't translate. You know, their food is expensive. It's all made from scratch. They're, they're making a really high quality product, but it's not meant to travel. Um, and I think that's, you know, something that we actually struggled with even, even before COVID. Delivery services are inherently made for the fast food kind of businesses of the world. If that makes sense, like the food already travels pretty well. The expectation is also pretty low. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not going to be too chafed if your McDonald's meal shows up and your fries are a bit cold and you only paid, you know, $10 for your meal. Do, do you um, think, do you think there's like a perception out there? And I just wonder, it is just for me talking to people generally and anecdotally, but there's sort of this perception that the the takeout restaurants and the, and that, yeah, those types that are just ideal for delivery are are kind of doing well right now because that's what everyone's doing. People are tired of cooking. Um, but you know, the, the bigger restaurants that have a lot more space that rely on, um, you know, parties and rely on people getting together and selling a lot of alcohol and all that, they, they're probably suffering, but who cares? Even at like, let's call it takeout, you know, the takeout level, you know, which, which are restaurants that I think have, have definitely had a much easier time adapting with COVID-19 and the shifting demand for more kind of in-home and convenience stuff. I, I think you know, you look at like the McDonald's of the world, the, uh, you know, the, the Popeye's chickens, the, those big brands. And, and I don't think there's much of a similarity between that and, and necessarily a, a takeout place that was more, I guess, like, like, like farmer, or um, I think it's much more difficult for those smaller, more independent restaurants to, to adapt to, to this because one, they're signing up to those delivery services at, you know, much different uh, commission rates. And they probably just also don't have those big bank accounts you mentioned to, to kind of weather the storm. And, yeah, and I think yeah, it's yeah. the same at the high end. Um, you know, I think the kegs, the joeys, you know, I think those restaurants are going to have a much more realistic chance of surviving through the winter. Uh, you know, going into this kind of, let's call it fall holiday season, where a lot of those higher end restaurants do make a lot of their money and then they go into a winter where they're, you know, maybe break even or, or, or losing a little bit of money. Um, there's a perception that some of the higher end restaurants, you know, are really crushing it, but a lot of them aren't. Um, what do you think is the fate then of, of kind of restaurants in the next two or three years? I mean, we've, we've sort of in Canada here been propped up with a lot of government help, um, which is, mm -hmm. you know, as the year comes to an end is planning or expected to, uh, to, to really decline. Um, like, do you, what do you see like downtown becoming? You know the number uh, the number that's getting bandied about a lot is sixty percent of independent you know, of restaurants are going to close, independent or otherwise, um, without more kind of government help. And I actually don't think that's unrealistic. I think I think it's probably probably if anything conservative um, in terms of an estimate. So you know you, I imagine what we're going to see is a lot of places closing, which which happened in in, in two thousand eight as well. Um, 2008, 2009, and, and you know the, the year immediately after was really hard in Toronto uh, for restaurants. There's a lot of closures. 
And then the commercial, you know, real estate market changed and, you know, it made way for a new wave of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Like I, I totally see that happening. We're just, again, anecdotally, I'm talking to people and they're, and they're just, they're less enamored by the city and it makes sense. Right. I mean, um, right. you don't need to live there if things are closed and, and, and if you can't, you know, I think a lot of restaurants, like you make money when the place is full and it's, it, you know, at yeah capacity and you know if we're talking about developing scenarios where it's 50% capacity or even 70% capacity I mean that by nature makes it that much more challenging for any restaurant to even even succeed at you know and maybe maybe there needs to be an adjustment though like maybe you know maybe rents ultimately need to come down maybe um you know business models kind of need to change and people need to pay more for things I, I don't know but you would think ultimately it, it's not good like it's not good for restaurants in the in the short term um, but at the same time, I wonder if, and, and this is, uh, you know, I don't know if we're going to be at the forefront of it, or I don't know who is going to be, I don't know who's necessarily going to win, but, um, you know, I remember, uh, you know, watching a documentary about Detroit and, you know, they went through, you know, a ridiculous economic struggle for a while and, and really saw yep. so many people leave the city and, and, you know, businesses everywhere shut down. And I think even Anthony Wardane went there and, and just sort of, was profiling kind of all these restaurants that were now opening up and they weren't, you know, they were done out of the, you know, the, the back of some house or they, they hardly had a storefront and it was, you know, they were sort of these new businesses that came about. And I wonder if that, this kind of gives rise to those uh, potentially in, in terms, you know, and maybe they aren't right in the city. Maybe they're out, out of the city where, where, you know, rent is a bit cheaper, but people are still super eager to, to eat out. I, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder if that's the kind of, for a little bit the future of it because I just I don't see like we're ever going to get back to busy restaurants in downtown anytime soon it, it, like there's a lot of you bring up a lot of good points and you know Detroit's a good example like it, it's the, the food scene there is actually phenomenal I spent time in Detroit and it's uh it, it's actually great you know the art scene is also very cool but yeah it just it just may be you know, the, the assumption that a rent in the suburbs is more expensive than downtown maybe that that may shift you know, like if you have a bunch of foodies who are in the suburbs who no longer have to go to their offices um, and you're a young chef who wants to do, uh, you know, a pop up or something like that. Are you going to do that downtown anymore? You know, may, maybe not. Maybe you just do it in the suburbs. Maybe that's where the demand is. Um, so so we could just see, you know, um, a, a shift. Like, I think that there's long been an assumption that to get to the, the top of, of the restaurant world both from kind of a, a creative standpoint, like, let's call it like a prestige standpoint, um, you, you have to be downtown. And that, that may change. That whole thing may change, which is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so like, I'm interested. So this, this podcast is uh, meant to be about our jobs and, and the happiness we get and the fulfillment and, and, you know, the lives and the businesses that we choose to, to be a part of and, and our careers and that sort of thing. Um, and so I wanted to to kind of put you back to thinking about when you started in the food industry because you've been in it um, a long time, fifteen years, I guess, yeah, maybe something 13, like that. 14, Thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years. I've lost count. You know, when you were young, uh, you know, young student, I guess, trying to think about what you would do for your career. What's the goal? What do you think of success uh, from a from from just beginning? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's an interesting question because I haven't thought about you know starting out. A, <laughs> <laughs> from from the start in a long time and um you know like I, I think i think when i started cooking which was probably 2007 2008 so so a, a long time ago at this point the landscape was so much different and and you know this is another interesting thing that's happening with with covid and and you know the way consumer demand is shifting in e-commerce is i think there's a lot more possibility um, for young people starting out in the food industry at this point in time. When I started, it was kind of, I guess the food network thing was just starting to take off. Celebrity chefs were just starting to take off. Um, and, and so your, your food personalities were, were more like your in your Julia child mold, your, your kind of home cook type of, of people as opposed to, you know, these rock star chefs like Gordon Ramsay was just starting to become popular uh, when I, when I started in the industry. And, and when I started, you know, it was very much go work in the best restaurant possible, put your head down. Um, you're cooking kind of 
high-end French French food based in French philosophy, and you you try and get really good at it and become you know uh, a head chef at a at a high-end restaurant, and that that was really the predominant path. Now there, there's there, there's different ways. There's always different ways of going about that. Whether you want to be independent or you want to be corporate, um, but but that was really kind of the goal, um, and, and I think that's very different for you know people getting into food at this point in time there's just so many more brands there's so many more possibilities there's so many more mediums uh and it's just it's just i think a lot easier to connect with people as opposed to before like you really just needed um you know you needed a a physical location and people needed to walk through the door right yeah 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 i mean so did that do you think that you know, you going through it that you changed in terms of, you know, through your experiences and through, you know, all the restaurants that you were involved with, whether still open or since closed, or has just the the industry changed, I guess, with social media and all the bloggers and Instagrammers. And I guess, I guess the other thing that, that um, is, is noteworthy when I started cooking was kind of the advent of the San Pellegrino top 50 list. Like there was always the Michelin star, um, Kind of community, but with with the advent of cookbooks, the advent of you know social media and the internet, and um, the top fifty list, there was this. I think it really kickstarted what 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 I would call the international um, high end cooking community. And you know you you would thrive you would or sorry, strive to to go learn. I mean the the goal was always learning, and and that was the culture it was just always you need to work in the best places. Doesn't matter what you get paid. Um, you just need to learn. You need to get better. And the goal, the holy grail of these uh, of these things, was always to go work at these these international restaurants that were rated on this top fifty list. You know, you're talking about your Nomas, your your Eleven Madison Parks, and, and, and those types of things. So, you know, and, and I think for a lot of people who are very passionate about food, that's probably still the goal is is to go work in the in the best places possible, and then and then you know potentially open one of those things yourself because at the end of the day um you know cooking is, is is at least at that level is very much about creativity so it's about i guess having a platform um and try to set yourself up to have a platform where you can be creative where you can you know create your own recipes your own dishes where maybe you get that cookbook yourself or, or you know you get these these positive reviews and and people can come and experience i guess your food food through your lens um, and, and that's, that's what the, you know, cooking at that level is all about. It, it, it's kind of cooking food with, with little to no limits, um, and, and doing it through your own lens, whether that's cultural, um, you know, the experience of the restaurants you've worked in or, or something you're particularly interested in, uh, a sector of food you're particularly interested in. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that, that's still very much what, you know, serious cooks are looking to do. Now, I mean, for me personally, uh, you know, I started to become disillusioned with that world uh, a while ago for, for a couple of reasons. One, I just realized as good as I was at cooking, I wasn't that good. I went and worked at one of those places. I went and worked in Attica in Australia. And, you know, the quality of the cooks um, was, was just exceptional. But it's also just the mindset you need to have. A lot, of, a lot of cooks and chefs think they're creative, but they're not really creating technique at that very high level. And it's extremely hard to do and extremely hard to do well. Uh, but, but the other thing, the other, I guess, two aspects of it were, were the exclusivity of it. Um, you know, you, when you're cooking at that level, the, the price point is, is, you know, extremely prohibitive to the average person. And I became tired of cooking food that, you know, the vast majority of people can't afford to experience. And I guess the last aspect of it was, was lifestyle, you know, the, the, the work that goes into it. And, um, you know, this is part of a, a problem in the restaurant industry is that, that the, the quality of cooking has become so good. Uh, the level that some of these chefs are cooking at and some of these kitchens are cooking at is so high that it's, it's almost difficult, if not impossible, to cook that food without putting extreme stress demands on people and, and doing it with a lot of free labor. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's just a completely committed lifestyle. You have to just be, you know, work and nothing else. And it, it's hard to make sense of that when you're, you know, you're not really being compensated adequately for, for the work you're doing. Um, it, it just, just 
stopped making sense to me at a certain point in time, I guess. Yeah, um, like I, I definitely get that sense from, there's not, it doesn't seem like there's that many people making that much money in the restaurant business. Like when you just, you kind of sit around no. it and you're, you're there and you look at, look at, you know, all the people who are in the kitchen, all the, you know, the, the, the people serving and, and, and just everything that goes in the back end and, and, you know, from, you know, farming and, and that whole, it doesn't really seem like rare that you say, Hey, this guy is really killing it. Or this, this group of people, you know, it just, it just really kind of get that sense. It's not, not that they can't make a good living, but it's just like you're saying, you, you know, it just takes this incredible commitment. Um, and it's not like, you know, it's always, you know, the compensation is always there per se, um, you know, relative mm-hmm. to some of the other places. And, and I don't know if that's just part of just people wanting to do it. I'm, I'm intrigued by like why people want to do it. Uh, to a certain extent, like it, it, it's just, is it a, I've decided to be in the food industry. So now this is, this is it. This is, this is the pinnacle of it. I want to be here. And it's less about the money than anything else. It is more of an, of an art and, and a, you know, the accomplishment of the great dish or, or being, you know, that great at, at such and such. And I, did you come away with that from, you know, yeah, working at, at Attica? Cause it was, it's like, it's like a top 50 restaurant, right? Um, kind of, yeah, yeah. It, you it, see it on those lists. There was a, a chef's table yeah. episode on yeah. it. So it's a very chef's cool table, place. Yeah. Um, like what did, what did you kind of come away from that sort of thinking? I mean, did you, well, your next, your next move after that, was it, was it challenging? Did you feel like you had to, you know, like, how do you, how do you get the next job after that? You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to think of, you know, that, that, that progression and, and what it sort of taught you about um, the food industry. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I will say, you know, from a, from a career progression standpoint, working there, I mean, I was living in Australia at the time and um, you know, it opened a lot of doors, it, you know, I was just there, you know, doing an internship for, for a short time. And even after that, you know, any job was, was really, a lot of jobs were available to me. It opened a lot of doors. But, you know, at the end of the day, where you take that progression, it's difficult because, you know, kind of taking a step backwards, talking about like why people want to do this, what, what what's the goal, people not making money. It, it's the best comparison I have is uh, sports. When you look at it, when you look at sports, the the people who actually become pro sports players have, um, you know, either whether it's because of inherent physical ability or, or the amount they've put into the work, there's so many people who are extremely good at sports who don't make it there. And then they really don't make any money. You know, it's extremely, it's extremely difficult to make money not being at that top level. And it's the same in cooking. There's so many amazing chefs and cooks. You spend all this time working, working, working towards this goal, but they don't make it. And you only see this kind of tip of the iceberg, like this, you know, 1% of these people who are on TV who have all these cookbooks, who even in a lot of cases still aren't really killing it. But to get there is so tough. It requires luck. It requires so many factors along the way. Um, And so for me, kind of leaving Attica, I was there and I was like, wow, this is a really cool environment. You know, we would have chefs from other top restaurants in for dinner you know, on a nightly basis, you're meeting all these people. It's, it's incredible. There's people coming from other high end restaurants. You're hearing about their experiences. You're doing this amazing food. It's just so good. Um, but then, yeah, where do you go from that? And, and for me, I looked at it and kind of said like, this is not the lifestyle I want. You know, I think I started to become more enamored with trying to find ways to, you know, work with certain types of food, working with, you know, farmers, producers on a, on a local scale. Uh, and making that sustainable while feeding, I guess, the larger segments of the population. So, so for me, you know, the reality is going to a place like Attica, while it was great for perspective, I don't think it really helped me in my career per se, in terms of finding a progression to a role that would really help me, I, I, I guess, be satisfied either professionally or, um, you know, stable financially in the sense that I just didn't really want to go be a, a head chef at some, you know, mid-range fine dining restaurant and, and do that for the rest of my life or become a corporate executive chef at a, you know, a keg yeah. or a Joey's or, or something like that. I wanted to, to try and find a, a space where I could, I guess, interact with food and interact with, with a supply chain differently, which, you know, I guess was a large impetus behind getting involved in, farmer and that and what that project came to be you know ever since we sort of came up with this idea and and, and 
you know, decided we wanted to open a restaurant and, 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 you know, tried to figure out how to make it happen. And it took, a, took a while to, to find a location. A it, was, it was over two years to, to actually find a location and, and put, kind of pull the trigger on it. I remember, you know, going around the city, looking at different places, um, you know, lots of different places, lots of different mm -hmm. kinds and looking at the rents and where they were and what we thought we could do in a given location. And, you know, just getting out, you know, there's only so many locations that, um, that are even willing to talk to someone who doesn't have an existing you know, sort of <laughs> restaurant. Beyond that, um, you know, there would be, there'd be places that had, you know, $20,000 in rent or something like just these ridiculous rents on, on Queen street or, or King street. And, and you just look at them and you say, you know, you could make money in that location, but you really have to hit it out of the park. Like everything has to go super well. Like, it, you know, and I, we, you know, we were looking at them saying like, this, this isn't, this just seems like such a big gamble. I mean, we, how can you do that? And how can you, you know, pay that much monthly rent and, and make a restaurant work, especially when you've never done this before. And so it, because of that, I think it took us a long time, but then you would just, you'd see who would rent the place and it would be some other person in a similar situation, some other group in a similar situation, and they'd be totally fine you know, taking on that risk. And then, you know, you'd see the place open and do a renovation and then, you know, six months or a year later be gone. And you're like, yeah, I know it was just, it was crazy rent. And these landlords were just, you know, pricing this thing to, to fail in many ways. Because I'm trying to get at like, what is the, there's some sort of romance or some, there's some, something about the restaurant industry and, and, and wanting to get involved in it. And I, I don't know, you know, maybe you and I, and, and lots of other people kind of get caught up into it, but have you thought about where that comes from and why that is? I mean, what, you know, what it is about it that, that, you know, makes people say, Hey, whatever the rent is, I will pay it. I will make it work. Like, let's just sink, you know, all this into it. Let me, you know, give up every Friday, Saturday night and, and, you mm -hmm. know, all my time and all my money, you know, what is it? Yeah, it, it's a good question because it, it seems to happen a lot. Um, and I think there's a certain naivety, um, you know, I think even us, you know, I think we, we came in equipped with a lot of tools, uh, you know, you know, your business experience, my experience in the restaurant world. I think even still we were, we were somewhat naive. Like, as you mentioned, it took us probably over a year just to come to terms with the fact that we weren't comfortable with one of those <laughs> big real estate investments. And it was a great choice for us, uh, you know, and really allowed us to, to build something. Whereas we, the reality is we've taken on one of those rents, we would have been gone in a year. Yeah. Um, but it, it just, I think people underestimate how much work it is. I think people overestimate size of the margin that they can, uh, you know, pull from any given amount of sales. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's somewhat a field of dreams type of mentality where people kind of, you know, get caught up in this thing and think if, you know, if I build this, people are just going to immediately flock there, which, you know, we know isn't the case. Um, it, it's hard to get customers to walk through your door, especially in critical mass. Like, as you mentioned, restaurants don't work unless they're busy. They, they have to be busy places. And uh, I think people just drastically underestimate, especially with the amount of noise and the amount of competition out there with, you know, social media, you know, delivery apps, all this kind of stuff that you're, you're competing with, how hard it is to, to, to get a customer and then to turn that customer into a repeat customer. But I guess, you know, I, I think there's just something people like going out to eat at restaurants. People look at the business model and think, Hey, like this isn't that complicated. I can do this. Um, and it would be fun. You know, I can tell my friends that I own a restaurant. I can, uh, you know, host people. And I know I've worked for some people who were kind of in that boat. They, they had probably a bit more money than sense. And, um, you know, yeah, totally. thought that it would be a fun project and it, it's, you know, turned out otherwise, like, like, you, you, you know, as you mentioned, I've worked at a lot of different restaurants and I don't think, I think at least 75% of them are now closed. And yeah, I mean, some of them had good runs, um, but, but, you know, ultimately they're generally not investments that have a long life cycle. Um, that, which is all other aspect of, even if you create a successful restaurant, uh, there's tends to be a short life cycle for those businesses. And it's just... <laughs> In a lot of ways, it's just not a good investment. Um, it's just not the easiest way to make money out there. Uh, but I think there's something about, you know, working with food, uh, being in that hospitality sector that just really seems to, to bring people in. And, um, 
you know, I think from a very basic level for, for people who work with food, like chefs, cooks, you know, the whole food network thing, the, the, the lists and all these, the, the publications, the Toronto lives, all these things, they, they do really romanticize the industry a lot more than it probably deserves. Yeah. Like hearing, hearing your answer to that, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, of, you know, probably early in the conversation when we were talking about the fate of restaurants. Um, and like, I, I, you know, part of the reason for getting into this in the first place was, you know, a love for restaurants and probably part of the reason you got into the food business was, was the same. And yeah, you know, it's, it, you just love that. Like when I go to travel, that's what I wanted. That's what I think about first is exactly. just kind of like, Hey, I'm going to these restaurants, whatever. And, and it becomes kind of the culture of the place. When I think about, you know, Thailand or when I think about going to, you know, Panama or, you know, any places that I've traveled, you know, I really think about it through the lens, the food, the food lens. Like that's, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. And, you know, if, if we tie so much of our culture to sort of that and how we view culture, um, you know, likewise, we have COVID-19 happening now and it, it kind of makes you realize that these restaurants are closing, like traveling, for, traveling is tra- challenging in and of itself, but also going to restaurants when you're traveling is, is just as challenging, if not more so. And I wonder to what extent like restaurants are that they're kind of are, you know, in the year 2020 or maybe 2019 is a better example, you know, our way of culturally expressing ourselves. And, and, you know, it's like, this is part of our culture. This is what we do. This is, this is us. We're, we're kind of become a society about food and, and, you know, food is not more than just, you know, feeding yourself and, uh, you know, but it's more of an art. Um, and so, you know, that's why people want to get into it is they want to decorate a place in their own way and they want to hire a staff and come up with a brand in their own way and make a dish in their own way. And, and that is, you know, their way of expressing themselves. Does that, any of that resonate with, with farmer and, and kind of what, you know, what you were trying to, to do is kind of running the place and owning the place? A hundred percent. I mean, yeah, again, it, it just comes down to that cultural lens and, and it is a huge way of, of, you know, restaurants food they really do play a huge role in making up the cultural landscape of of any community place and and you know the rate at which i guess the pressure that they're under right now it it does make it pretty scary um when you start to think that we can we can lose that we can lose these um cultural identities that are expressed through through eating places um you know and that that cultural identity is stronger in some places like for example thailand with amazingly rich food culture um, yeah. or, you know, so many places like that. Uh, whereas in Canada, we don't necessarily have that, but it's still a very, very important part of, of living in a, in a, you know, a city. Um, you know, and it's even at a more basic level, things like coffee shops. Um, you know, it, these, these things are important. They're, they're, yeah, very, very important. To our um, and, and yeah, for sure. I, I think the goal of owning uh, a food business is is totally to, to do something through your own lens and through your experience and you know i think so much of my experience comes from you know growing up uh i grew up in the belleville area which is right near prince edward county which everybody knows now who's in the ontario region as a um you know a tourist spot in a in a wine region that's that's very rich in, in agricultural history and what a lot of people don't know is that at a certain point in time, Prince Edward County was actually one of the leading agricultural areas in, in terms of, of canning and food production. So, so the area itself is, is very rich farming history. And I was always working with chefs. Um, like one of my, my big mentors is a farm table chef named Kevin McKenna, who worked with Michael Statlander, who is kind of the OG of farm to table nice. cooking in, um, in, in Ontario and Canada largely. And actually one of the first chefs in Canada or maybe the first chef in Canada to hit that top 50 list that uh, I was talking about before. So he was always a tremendous influence on me. And I was always, you know, working directly with farmers at the the restaurants I worked at. So I think my upbringing and where I came from uh, made me more interested in working with farmers, supporting local communities, um, you know, getting real food on people's plates as opposed to you know, the forms and, you know, crazy technique or creating these mind blowing dishes or, or these types of things. And so, yeah, I mean, one of my major goals with, with farmers always to 
not only to provide, you know, Torontonians in an urban center with, you know, high quality food from local farms, but then also to support those farmers and support those agricultural communities, um, which, which I think is a really cool goal. And especially to try and do that at scale, you know, we're not talking about feeding 50 people a night or a hundred people a night. We were feeding, you know, hundreds of people a day, um, which is really cool. Um, and, and you don't typically see that type of food in, in the catering space particularly. So, um, and, and I'm really proud of that. Do you think people value food the way they should? I mean, you know, we, a lot of people think about it a lot. It's a big part of their culture, but, but everyone seems to want a deal all the time. Like I, I kind of, you know, there's always ads when you think about any of the sort of the chain restaurants, like really they, they live and die by um, the various deals and the ads they have. Um, people are, you know, fiends for coupons. There's, um, there, there was a program called Meal Pal in Toronto that was, I think it was something like, you know, $6 a meal or something like that. And, and, you know, it was like, you know, basically half price, basically meals were, you know, around the city and they'd give you a bunch of options for, for lunches. Um, it seems like it's, you know, being driven by like deal, 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 deal. Like, you know, that's, that's kind of what it is, but there's something about, you know, I think a deal that people are still, still kind of want. Do you, does that, does that bother you? Do you know, do you, have you noticed that in kind of the, the food industry? There's definitely, you know, no shortage of, you know, companies or coupon ish type, you know, services that I think approached, um, you know, us in the restaurant as farmer. Um, but do, do, does, that, does that, does that bother you? Do you, did you, have you noticed that? Yeah. And I think, you know, I think in a lot of ways, that's one of the biggest issues facing the restaurant industry and why it's kind of it's a bit of a broken industry. Um, because you, because at the end of the day, everyone is still competing on price and, and, I think customers just don't, what, what a customer is willing to pay for a meal just hasn't really adapted as much as it should have. When we talk about kind of the rising cost of food, the rising cost of labor, and then, and then you know, trying to pay a staff a living wage. Uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. And, and as you kind of alluded to, I think you see this, it, it's most prevalent and it's, I guess it's more in your face with those big brands where they're just really competing on price. You know, there's always coupons. You get McDonald's coupons in the mail, every, you know, every big brand, you're always getting coupons. They're always doing deals, running promos and the food is just cheap. That's a big challenge facing the restaurant industry. And I think, um, you know, the rituals and, and Uber Eats and stuff like that and all these kind of third party technology companies that are coming in and, and trying to offer new ways to access customers are almost making it worse um, because, you know, they're acquiring, acquiring a bunch of customers and kind of meeting demand for delivery and convenience. But at the same time, the restaurant margin is getting squeezed out of that. And at the end of the day, people already aren't willing to pay enough uh, potentially for, for, for food products. So it, it's, it's, it makes it tough. Yeah. All those, really all those delivery services are doing it like crazy, right? They're, they're, uh, you know, this is kind of the time COVID-19, yep. like everyone's doing delivery. Like, let's make sure we get, you know, as much uh, market share as possible. And, and totally. I still like, you know, being in and around the food industry for three years, I, you know, like something like all you can eat sushi. Like I just don't, a lot of businesses I go into and I'm like, okay, I, I kind of, I understand a little bit now what you're going after, like, you know, how you're doing it, your price model. And I go into an all you can eat sushi place and I am just like, I don't understand it. I mean, I just, I can't, I can't understand how they can make money. And there's many that, that have been open for a long time. And so clearly, you know, they must be doing something right. And I don't know, have you seen um, the Tiger King documentary? Yep. Thing, those, so in there, if anyone hasn't seen it, um, you know, in, in there, um, the Joe Exotic was feeding his tigers mostly with expired Walmart you know, meat. He would basically go to Walmart, buy all of their meat that had expired, you know, yeah. as cheaply as possible. Yeah, the old Walmart trucks. Right. And then, and then, you know, freaking out when, when all of a sudden, you know, a shipment didn't come in. But then he opened a restaurant at, you know, his, his place. And then, and then, you know, and this kind of, they allude to the fact, I don't know how clear they say it, but they're sort of like, well, he must be using the meat for that, right? Like, it's just like, it's, he's got, <laughs> he's got all this extra expired Walmart meat you must be using it at the restaurant. And it just kind of got me thinking about going back to it. Like if, you know, just back to that connection with the restaurant and how far that is from all the stuff that we're talking about, um, understand, you know, willing to pay for things, farm, you know, all those sorts of things. And it kind of, it, it really freaked me out of all the things in that documentary. I was, I was sort of like, Oh man, what, you know, potentially what are we eating? Funnily, I kind of glossed over that whole part of it. <laughs> <laughs> he does go back. He opens a restaurant and it, I don't think it's very successful <laughs> because it probably was all expired, terrible tasting meat, but it was like pizza, Walmart meat. 
maybe hot dogs. Yes, it was, you know, you're just like, what is he putting on that pizza? Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good, you know, point. And it's, it's something to think about. And, uh, you know, in North America, I think our, our food system is a little bit broken in the sense that we're eating more processed food than anywhere else in the world uh, by a fairly long shot. And, you know, there's all these you know, sustainability issues with, um, you know, seafood, uh, and overfishing as well as, you know, eating red meat and, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, and people are trying to eat things like grass fed and free range and, you know, factory farming. And there's, uh, there's all these things in, in people are inherently, you know, when people see these, these factory farms and all these cows or all these chickens, you know, in these terrible environments, they're inherently appalled by it. But, um, you know, when it comes time to pay for something, they're, you know, in reality, those are the choices that we're making more often than not. And I, you know, I think one of the concerns with people deal hunting and people not being willing to pay more money for food and the all you can eat sushi is a perfect example. There's no way they're using sustainable fish for that. You know, they're going to be using, um, you know, the cheapest fish that's, that's available on the marketplace. Yeah, otherwise, there's no way you make money. No one cares, though, I guess. Like, that's what you're saying. People are basically saying they don't care, right? But yeah. by going to those they, places, they, like, they're not – it's not what you're going after. You're, you're trying to get – you know, you like sushi, but you don't want to pay much because it's expensive, right? It's expensive stuff. It's expensive, yeah. yeah. It, it, exactly. And so, and so um, you know, it's, it's a challenge, I think, just kind of facing our food systems in general is just, you know, if, if people want independent farmers to exist, you know, you, you can't – just want to buy the cheapest food possible because it's not going to come from your, you know, your local farm or the farmer's market. It's just, it's just not realistic. Um, you know, if people, if people want something like grass fed beef or they want antibiotic hormone free, it, it's just, you're just not going to be able to purchase that at this, at these like rock bottom prices. Right. So I, I think there, there is this element where consumer mentality and how much they're valuing food needs to probably change. When you think historically, like, I think I read a statistic once that, you know, over time, like just kind of history, uh, the vast majority of people's disposable income would have been spent on, you know, food and, and shelter, but, you know, mostly feeding their families. Whereas now, I, I think it's, it's below 10% of people's disposable income that makes sense, yeah. is spent on food, which is, which is kind of shocking. You know, we're buying, you know, everyone goes on vacations and buys cars and, uh, you know, TVs and things for their houses and all this kind of stuff. But, uh, but our food budget is, is inherently low. Um, and it's definitely historically low in terms of a percentage of disposable income. So, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just an interesting thought that, that people don't seem to value food experiences as much as they, they probably should, um, or even just at a more basic level, don't probably aren't willing to invest in even just feeding ourselves and our, and our families as much as we probably should. But it's, it's, it's definitely a, a big problem for the food industry and particularly the restaurant industry right now. Um, so I have, I don't have too many more questions for you, but there, there's one that I, I don't think I've ever asked you um, and, and wanted to, um, and that's about um, getting a review, get, getting a bad review as a, <laughs> as a chef. As a, and like, I, I was just going through some of the reviews from, from farmer and, I think four and a half to five stars out of five stars is generally like what you would see on basically all the platforms. I mean, it's a, you know, there's some great, yeah. um, at the same time, there are some, some bad ones. Like I, I just have a few here that I, that I picked out, you know, there's one that said, uh, it literally says, says, do, do never go to that place. Uh, they don't. <laughs> and then and it goes on order online, take almost forever. <laughs> they don't, care if the driver is waiting like it just so this was clearly a you know a delivery gone wrong or something and the person decided to yeah you know to say it another one though was you know the food was disappointing lacked flavor there was no real thought to how it was presented um you know i should have gone to the saint lawrence market um you know you just get these kind of like reviews of people who are just like you know just upset and, and attacky and, and mm -hmm. whatever and then you know on the flip side though we'll see you know a vast majority of the reviews are you know and i, I pulled out some good ones too you know um, this is a hidden gem uh you know fantastically locally sourced restaurant you can literally taste the goodness in their food um you know it's easily my favorite restaurant in all of toronto so you get you get those too but doesn't does the i imagine the the negative one just sort of weighs on you that much more um what, what does it feel like to get kind of a, a, a bad review well you know it's it's funny you say that because especially at a certain point in time 
I, I mean, keep in mind, there's, there's a point in time before user reviews. And so yeah. that's been a positive and a negative, uh, I, I think, for the restaurant industry. Before that, you were, you were solely relying on media reviews. So, you know, when, the process of opening a restaurant, you knew that within the first six months, um, sometimes really fast, uh, I remember opening a restaurant uh, in, in Toronto and we got reviewed within the first two weeks, which was cruel. Because no one starts out really firing on all cylinders <laughs> in the first two weeks. You didn't have it all figured out, probably, no. No, 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 no you really don't. Um, but, but you live and die by those. And, and if those reviews are bad, your, your business is, is essentially done. Um, you're, you're never really going to make it. So, so they hold so much power. Uh, and now with, with user reviews, that's changed, uh, especially for kind of, you know, like fast casual restaurants, like, like in our space and stuff like that. But then, then, you know, your customers have a tremendous amount of power and, you know, even some of them, we get great reviews, but they'd only give us four stars and they don't realize that that's actually bad. Like it needs to be five stars. <laughs> right. Um, otherwise, otherwise it just doesn't really work. So um, it brings down our, our rating. So, you know, but, but in general, I think the first couple times you get one of those terrible reviews, like inherently you're in hospitality to make people happy. Um, that's, that's your end game, you know, and, and really what you're selling is, is, is an experience. You want, you want people to come away very, very satisfied. So when, when they don't, you do take it to heart, especially because you put so much time and effort into it. But um, I think, you know, over time, you start to, I guess, develop thicker skin and you start to not really focus so much on the negative reviews because at the end of the day, some people are always going to find something to complain about. And especially, you know, on your Googles and your Yelps, there are just people who just complain and that's what they do. They just go on those review things and they just kind of, you know, poke holes and everything. So you learn to separate out what positive you know, like what, what positive feedback you're getting and, and, you know, ways to improve. Cause it's important. Uh, it's important to get that customer feedback and, and try and, you know, continuously improve and, you know, kind of separate that out from people who are just straight up, you know, being mean. Um, and, and, and then, you know, just focusing on all the positive reviews. Uh, Cause you know, if you're doing something right, you're going to get overwhelmingly positive reviews. So, but uh, yeah, the first couple, they really sting. No, I, 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 I know you, it, it, they just, they sit with you. you. You kind of need like five or six really good ones to kind of cancel out one bad one. I find it just sort of, yep. you know, in that, yep. in that, I don't know, just in your head, it, it really, you know, um, especially when they, when they come out like that. So do you, you know, when some, when you're eating somewhere and, you know, a server comes and they ask you like how the food was like, do you, or how honest are like, you? Cause you don't want to lie to the person and say, Hey, you know, the food was great when it was awful. Or do you have like a, a strategy or a tact or do you, um, how, how nice are you? And, and, and do you, do you ever break it to them that, Hey, this, this is, is not good, but you know, obviously in a nice way. I mean, you mean when I'm eating out somewhere? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I have a really hard time with giving feedback I think because I'm so <laughs> sympathetic to it. I probably to the point of fault where sometimes I'll just put up with something that's just wrong and, and not tell anyone. Right. Um, I, I got to admit that, that the, the years of being in the industry have made me, have made it very difficult for me to complain. Um, cause you know, I also feel bad, you know, knowing that, you know, there's a cook or a server or someone who's probably going to get in quite a lot of trouble for whatever your, your complaint is. And they're generally stressed out and not necessarily having the best day in the first place. So right. I'm pretty sympathetic to it at this point. I'm not a very good complainer. I got to admit. So I just wanted to sort of end this with, um, you know, uh, we're kind of in the spot and we haven't talked really much about um, sort of what we're up to now at the restaurant because effectively, you know, as a restaurant, we've been closed and, you know, remain closed because it's a struggle to sort of think about who would come and, and why they would and, and, you know, just that it would be enough to make it a meaningful business. And so I think we're, you know, looking at the very real possibility that, um, you know, that we never do, that we never do open and that, you know, we've been working on some other things in and around the prepared meal space. Um, and you know, that doesn't, has nothing to do with where the restaurant is located. It doesn't need to be there. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a ton of different scenarios, I guess that, that could happen. Um, I, I guess kind of two parts of it is one is like, you know, how does it feel that, that, and I, I personally don't even know how it feels. I, I, I kind of, I, I'm not sure. Right? I go through lots of different, 
um, emotions, but, you know, how does it feel to sort of be confronted with that? And then, you know, on the one hand, and then, um, and then two, um, is there any way, you know, going through sort of all that we've gone through in terms of, you know, one, getting to know each other, but developing an idea, opening a restaurant, kind of all the trials and tribulations, going through all the, the bad reviews, all the good reviews, um, you know, even if, farmer never is successful as a restaurant and by successful i guess mean i just mean um you know financially is it do you still think that it can be a success and how do you how do you sort of think about that as you know a as a project as a two three year endeavor um mm -hmm. as, as actually being something that was successful um as a restaurant yeah well i mean i guess you know, as this, you know, podcast is kind of about work and work-life balance and finding meaning in work, you know, I, it's definitely been an emotional few months and in, in a, in a thought-provoking few months after COVID hit, you know, because we've gone from having this, what I would consider impactful business, um, both from, 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 I would say, three standpoints. One, I, I think, you know, as, as I mentioned before, we had this, you know, great supply chain where we were, you know, positively um, supporting a bunch of cool, you know, local businesses. Yeah, we were providing real value for, for Torontonians uh, in the marketplace and we were selling a lot of food and, and you know, our, our growing success uh, at the time that COVID hit was, was really indicative of that and that we were really finding a, a good niche in the marketplace. Um, and then I, you know, I think as a hospitality business, I, I firmly believe that we were, you know, a good place to work, um, a positive place to work. We were providing people with, uh, you know, good work-life balance, which, which is not very common in the food and restaurant industry. And, and so I think, you know, from our supply chain, our customers, our, our staff and our team, we, we were really doing a lot of positive things and really, really creating a positive impact. And then, you know, I think for us personally, as, as, as founders, uh, I mean, for me anyways, it was an incredible growth experience, you know, one way or another. And I, I mean, even trying to navigate COVID from a certain context is, has been a pretty amazing learning experience. Still ongoing. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. hopefully we don't have to do that ever again in our lives, but, um, it's you know it's it's been incredibly you know satisfying and and um, you know an incredible learning experience. So uh, you know when when you kind of look at it and go okay, well worst case scenario we have to shut the business and and we all have to move on and, and go do something else. And you start to wonder like okay, well what's next? And and I think from a work standpoint, you start to to look at the different options, and it becomes very difficult to try and pinpoint something that's going to be as meaningful. You know, like, like how, how as an individual, do you just go somewhere and create this much value? Um, and, and, you know, for me, that's, that's a, a really tough question to answer. Yeah, no, I, I don't have any answers, but I appreciate um, you joining the podcast. Uh, this being the first episode, I'm sure it's clunkier than some of the other, other ones, but if anyone listening has made it this far, I appreciate it uh very much as well and uh yeah it can only really go up from here i think in terms of uh so. you know clarity and all that sort of stuff but uh yeah anyways Kyle, it's been a pleasure um having you on the podcast having a chat um and really all these years for um uh, working together it's it's been uh, it's been amazing i think we've learned a ton about the food industry and, and just business in general and and yeah, I, I, I struggle to think of how, um, you know, in that way, it, 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 we can't think of it as success. So, um, so it remains to be seen where, where, where it goes and what we see from now. But uh, at the very least, thanks for, for joining the podcast and uh, I'll see you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Greg, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. So that concludes my interview with Kyle Webster. Thank you so much for listening. One thing we didn't mention on the interview was what we're doing now, which is a prepared meals business. You can always check us out, farmer, F-A-R-M-R.ca, if you want to see what we're doing now. It's it's kind of a work in progress. We're, we're working on a, a frozen meal business that uh, is brand new and we just didn't have the chance to talk about in this episode. But 
Thanks so much for listening. Please check on our website at lifetimeatwork.com. You can there stay up to date on all the new episodes and also subscribe to our email newsletter. As well, this is a new podcast, a new brand, new everything. So if you can tell your friends or if you think there'd be someone out there that would benefit from listening to the podcast, I'd highly um, appreciate it if you recommended us. Um, also, you can post this on social media or give us a review on your favorite listening app. Any of those things like really, really help me out. Um, so thank you so much. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.